taking time out of the busy schedule to come here. It's gonna be a remarkable night. I'm really excited about it. Um, we have three successful entrepreneurs um, that are gonna be pretty much telling us their story, how they started, how they navigated the murky waters of being an entrepreneur, and there's gonna be a lot of nuggets there and tons of insight. Uh, so for those of you that are either entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, I think this is a great opportunity to hear it from, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, right? Um, a bit of a backdrop of who I am. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Juan Maldonado. I co-founded a financial technology company back in 2013. We grew it to be one of the largest payment platforms in Latin America and ended up selling the company to MasterCard in 2021. Um, since then, I left and I started a new venture uh, called Parenting. <laughs> it doesn't pay as well, but it is, it is incredibly rewarding and I do not take that for granted. Um, Yes, many off. Um, so I, I, I get a lot of joy in being able to spend time with my daughter and my amazing wife and family. But when I'm not doing that, um, I have a consulting company called 187 Labs where we help early stage founders build their respective companies and scale them, applying some of the mythology that I've learned from being a tech entrepreneur in Silicon Valley and graduating from Y Combinator, which is a very well-renowned accelerator program. Um, so with that, I'd like to transition over to the panel because one of the things that, I'm just gonna take this off actually, sorry. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about building a company is how it, how it in essence starts. So one of the things that I often talk about when I'm chatting with uh, entrepreneurs is how they got started and that that little kernel of, of the idea, how it was generated, the inspiration behind it, is usually what leads the way for them to build you know, their, their life's work, quite honestly. So with that, I'd like to start, I'm gonna start in the middle with Renee, because I'm a firm believer in, in having ladies start first. But um, so Renee, for those of you that don't know, Renee Ferris is the founder of Aries Bakery. Um, she's originally from Wayne. And um, she has a really interesting story, because I think you went to culinary school, and when you were in culinary school, you were interested in being more of a writer than an actual creator or yes. baker, if, if yes. I'm not mistaken. And then um, some way along the way, I think you, um, you kind of found the passion for baking. So if you could, why don't you kind of give us a background story on, on how you got started, what inspired you, and how Aries Bakery came to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I had always wanted to go to culinary school, but my parents were totally against it. Um, I'm first generation Palestinian American, and to them, college was very important. And I really wasn't the academic type. Like, I really like to cook. Like, that's what I love to do. And um, my parents just didn't want me to. I guess work that hard in life, you know, because when you are working in the culinary industry, you work a lot. It's very laborious. So I made a promise with them that I would go to college. And if I graduated college and I still wanted to go to culinary school, then they, then they would uh, allow me to go. So I went to college and when I was in college, I actually uh, discovered that I really enjoyed writing and I majored in English literature with a minor in creative writing and I was really excited you know to jump into the writing world and it was just about that time when all of those major uh, food magazines were closing because everybody started blogging 
And every, everything kind of like changed. It was like between 2004 and 2008 when you know the whole um, editorial world was changing um, and the platform was changing. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I'm not gonna go and get a job at food and wine right away, but maybe I can get a job cooking. So I went, uh, one of my friends from high school was a sous chef at um, this new restaurant that had opened at the Plaza Hotel. It was called the Oak Room, and it was just like this beautiful, beautiful restaurant in this beautiful kitchen. And um, they, I walk in, and they hand me a toque to wear, and I was like, what is this? Like, I can't wear that. I felt so silly, but... After a full 12-hour day with like me being so scared to even like ask for a drink of water, I realized that like I really, really enjoyed it, and uh, it was like an adrenaline rush in a way. Um, so I, I went home and I said, "All right, <laughs> deal's back on. I'm going to culinary school." And they were like, "Oh gosh, <laughs> like why?" But uh, you know, I it's I just knew right away like that's what I needed to do, like that's what I wanted to do. So I started working at uh, Carlos Bakery in Hoboken for the Cake Boss, and um, he was a family friend, so I kind of got the job that way, and um, I was interning for him while I was going to college, and then switched over to culinary school, and he tried to tell me not to go to culinary school. He was like, it's a waste of money, I'll just teach you everything you need to know. And I was like, no, I think I'll go to culinary school. Like, I think it'll be good for me. And it was. It was great. And then, um, then he got picked up for a television show, which was Cake Boss. And I was like, I'm going to quit. Like, you guys can, you know, have this show. And he was like, no, 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 stay. It'll be fun. And I was like, okay. So I stayed. And it went from, like, you know, like, shooting this, like, silly show to, like, fans up and down the block. Like, it was, a it big was insane. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was insane. Like, we would have to, like sign autographs walking into the bakery and I was like I'm an intern <laughs> like you don't know who I am but like people were really excited about this so um so I stayed there for a while and I graduated school and I got um I got a part-time job working at a Michelin starred uh, Greek restaurant in the city that was like really amazing because I I loved working at Carlos but it was a very different uh environment than working in a Michelin starred, you know, restaurant. And I really did enjoy the restaurant. Was it, was it as fast paced or? Oh, uh, it's just very different. <laughs> just like a little, it's first off, it's a family run business. So you, what you see on TV, I'm like that drama is what you are working with, which can be very stressful, you know, when you're trying to do like a five tier cake and you have, you know, these women screaming in your face and you're like, I just got to finish this cake, you know, but it was, it was great. It was a great experience. Um, I did two seasons on the show. I did like these really like insane cakes. We did, a, we did a cake for, uh, the Gerucci family that is like, they do like the Macy's fireworks. So we like built the New York City skyline and we actually built fireworks inside the cake. So the cake like, you know, was shooting fireworks. Um, we flew down to, uh, where do we, uh, Charlotte and we, for NASCAR and we did like, we actually made a cake um, the size of a NASCAR. It was insane. How long did something like that take? Uh, we had the culinary school there um, build the cake 
And then uh, I was in charge. It was me and two other girls. We were in charge of building the engine. Mm. And we were like, we don't know what an engine looks like. <laughs> like. You want us to make an engine out of cake? And they were like, yeah. So we were like Googling what an engine looks like. And we just like came up with something and we designed it and we built it. And they, they like put it in like the way you would drop an engine in a car. But it was like full cake. So that's like really art cool. imitates life, basically. Yeah. And we got to like drive the NASCAR ring. It was like really, it was just like really cool experiences. So, but then it was just getting crazy and it was like working a lot. And um, my boss was getting a little <laughs> intense. So it was, uh, it was definitely a great experience. But then I had a, a job offer in Los Angeles, and um, I had wanted to move to the city, but my parents being first, uh, I mean, sorry, me being first generation, my parents were like, no way, you're not moving to the city. Like, you, you live here, you take the bus to the city. And I was like, but I want to live in Manhattan. I want to live in Brooklyn. And they're like, no. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to move to California. And they're like, okay, that's fine. I don't know why they were okay with me moving all the way to Los Angeles, but didn't let me live in Manhattan, but whatever. <laughs> like, to them, like, that was okay, you know. So, uh, yeah, so I moved to California. I, I opened a few restaurants in California. I was just working and working and working. And when I was living there, I just, like, I started to realize that I really missed my family because I come from, like, a huge family. And um, I, I saw that if I stayed there, I probably would miss a lot of, like, really important things. So I was there for, like, two years. and then In I, L.A.? You yeah, I was in L.A. for two years. And then I came back, and I knew that I wanted to you know, have a family and, you know, learn some more. And I, um, my friends were all working at Gramercy Tavern and I told my boss, hey, I'm going to Gramercy Tavern for a job. And I didn't have a job at Gramercy Tavern. But I, then I went to Gramercy Tavern and I was like, I need to work here. And they were like, uh. So you literally manifested Yes, that. I did. And then I got the job and then I started working there and it was great and just worked at more restaurants in, in New York. And um, this leads me to my full-on mental breakdown when you work so much. It's, like, really easy to just, like, snap. So uh, I definitely definitely had a mental breakdown. I subletted my apartment in Bushwick, moved back home with my family, and was like, okay, if I want to have a family and if I want to, you know, make my own schedule. I was working literally, like, 10 o'clock in the morning. I would open for brunch and lunch and stay till 2 a.m. Because when you work pastry, you work brunch. You work, uh, you know, you have to get everything, breads in the oven, and then you have to plate all of the desserts. And the last thing people order is desserts. So you're stuck there all night long. And if you, you know, if it's you and one other person, you have to stay. You, like, you can't just leave. Like, you have to work, you have to stay. Um, so I just, I kind of like reached, uh, reached the limit when I was like sleeping in the, in the coat room. And I was like, this is, this is like, this is too much. Like this working like this is too much. Nobody should work like that, especially if you're not working for yourself. And that's kind of like where I was like, if I'm going to work this hard, I need to work for myself. So the amount of hours, the amount of effort, the energy that you were putting in for, as you put it, another person's business, um, that was, in essence, kind of like the spark that led you down this path of entrepreneurship. For sure. And, and then, I, I wanted to have a family. And when, in a, a, being a female mm -hmm. in that industry is really hard because 
you you have the same expectations as a man, but when you're a mother, it's very different because you have you have to be there for your family yeah, when you you know our bodies are different. You know, like sometimes I need to take a break when I you know. I couldn't picture myself being pregnant standing like that and working like that without having any like breaks at all. Like you can't it's it's definitely gotten a lot better. Right. You know, just the toxicity of the city, you know, and like the restaurants, it's definitely yeah. gotten better because you can't work people like that. It's really not fair. Yeah. I think there's also laws prohibiting that too, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but I think for a long time like if you if you spoke up or you, you know, you spoke up like against like your boss, like it was frowned down upon. You weren't going to get a, you weren't going to get, you know, a, um, what's the word? Help me out. A promotion. A promotion. Yeah. You weren't going to get a promotion if you complained. You get a promotion if, you know, you're doing every single job you're not supposed to be doing. So here you are, you're working insane amount of hours, breaking your back. You have, you know, this breakdown, as you mentioned. And, and at what point did you think, okay, I want to start my own business and then what were the actual steps that you took to uh to embark on that journey well it's kind of funny like the location the idea yeah i always loved rutherford yes. like i always i'm from wayne but growing up we used to go to eros cafe because you could smoke outside and they had like a hookah thing so we always used to go to rutherford to hang out at eros and like my I wife loved, used to hang out there yeah yeah Talking no about it all the time yeah no it's a great place like it was just like a really cool town and most of my friends lived in Manhattan and I was like, okay, if I open up a place and like, that's, that was like, honestly, I was like, how are my friends going to visit me? They're, they don't have cars. Like this is, this was, yeah, I was like, if I want my friends to visit me, I need to yeah, be in a town that's close to the train, that's close to the city. So I was looking at Jersey City. I was looking, um, we, we kind of looked in Hoboken, but like Hoboken was just like crazy expensive. Um, and I, I like, would just drive around, to be honest. And I was with my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. Hey. Yeah. And we, he would drive around with me. And um, we drove through Rutherford a few times. And the space that we were in was actually not for rent. Um, and I just, like, talked to the owner. And he kept trying to... <laughs> You know Musa. He was he just he kept trying to like get me to rent the other places on Park Ave, and I was like, I don't want to be on Park Ave. Like, I actually like really want to be away from everybody. And he was like, But why? Like, why don't you want to be on Park Ave? And I was like, Cause I don't know what I'm doing yet. Like, I just want to <laughs> be away while I figure it out. You know, and let it like organically happen. And um, he he took my number and he was like, I have it rented out. And I was like, Okay, that's how I found the space. Like, literally just walking by. And um, then he called me and he was like, I've decided to not take the other lady's offer. I've decided to take your offer because I feel like God has, it's a sign and God has put you here. Because he, he is also Palestinian and his family knew my family, you know, from years ago. So he was like, he was like a very spiritual person. So he was like convinced that I was put on, you know, I was here to, you know, meet with him and. You know, and he—he was—he passed away, but he was—he was an interesting um, landlord. So uh, yeah, so I signed the lease. I'm so excited. I call up the bank. I'm like, I need a loan, and they're like, We don't give loans out. They actually like laughed at me, and the girl was like, Who told you you could just go into a bank and get a loan? And I was like, What do you mean? What's the point of a bank if you can't get a loan? And they're like, Well. <laughs> 
<laughs> like you, you really can't get a loan. Like, what do you have? I was like, I don't have anything. I think I had like $12,000 in my savings account. And um, I was like, oh, shit, I already signed this lease. Like, I got to find some money. So I, I reached out to my family, and, like, they all knew how hard I worked, you know. So my, my brother gave me $5,000. My grandma gave me $5,000. I was like, okay, that's $10,000. With mine, it's $22,000. That's not even going to cover my rent for the year. I was like, I can't do this. So in essence, you kind of created your own forcing function, oh, which yeah. is something that I do want to get back to uh, later in the discussion because I, I feel like when, when, whenever I chat with a lot of entrepreneurs, um, there's nothing more motivating than fear. Like the end of the day, yeah. I think fear is by, by far the biggest driver for anything. Like you can be passionate about something, you can be um, you know, really intrigued by something, but ultimately what, what I've learned in my experience is the forcing function that really moves the needle tends to be fear. For sure. So by you kind of putting yourself in a position where you had to figure it out, you in essence did figure it out. Yeah. And that, and that and that's amazing. Um so so you ended up getting the securing the location, you secured yeah. financing and then and then you were pretty much up and running at that point. Yeah, my parents took a loan out on their house for me. Okay. Yeah. And right. uh yeah. Yeah, they really believed in me and um did I did pay them back, and it wasn't easy. With interest. Yeah, it wasn't easy, and they helped me. They helped me. Like, they were like, you you know, you have to do this. Um, I brought everything secondhand. Uh, I, you know, it was a, a gut renovation, but we really, really had to, like, be smart with everything because every single, like, I can still tell you to this day where each nail came from. Like, yeah. that's how, how, like, on it we had to be. Um, and yeah, so we opened and um, just continued to work, and we used you know social media to kind of get the ball rolling with getting people in and just keeping creative and exciting, and we just kind of snowballed from there. Awesome, awesome. So, so, so with that spirit of of snowballing, I'm going to transition over to to Manny. Um, so, Manny. I'd love to hear, same question, right? I'd love to hear kind of the origin of how you started as an entrepreneur. Um, for those of you that don't know, Manny's the owner of Substance, um, which is a well-renowned um, salon and barber barbershop. He also is the founder of Be Well, which is a relatively new restaurant in town focused on healthy eating. Um, and you started off, interesting story, you were you're originally from Newark, if I understand correctly. Born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Look at that. In the 80s and 90s. Look at that, the rough time. time. Yes, yeah. the rough time. Um, and you had a, kind of a near-life-death experience, if I'm not mistaken, around 19 years old, mm -hmm. where you, you had this, this car accident, um, and then that kind of uh, shook you up a bit and kind of put you on this path to pursue your passion. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that backstory, what drove you to be an entrepreneur, and how Substance and Be Well came to be? Yeah, I almost tend to forget that people don't know that about me, so when I start talking to people, I, you know, I forget that not everyone knows your backstory. So this is a great way. So... First, I want to thank uh, you, Juan, for putting this together. I want to thank the Williams Center for putting this together. Let's give it up for them. Yes, absolutely. Williams Center, 1,000%. And just, just being able to like, come together as entrepreneurs and our community and sharing stories and, and hopefully inspiring, I think that um, that's the way we should do it. So, yeah, growing up in Newark in the 80s and 90s, Community was a big part of uh, the way I grew up. So North Nork at that time, um, it was a predominantly like Italian Cuban neighborhood that I grew up in, Bloomfield Avenue. Um, 
I grew up across the street from a barber shop. And my grandfather, who came from Cuba at 42, I'm Cuban-American, so I was born here, uh, brought my mom and his, um, his other daughter, my, my aunt, at a young age. They started a new life here. And one of the things he did right away was he started a business. He started a supermarket. And so the gentleman who owned the barbershop was also Cuban. They knew each other. So automatically it was like a community and he had a, a supermarket, bodega, deli, like right down the street. So we were very community driven. Um, I joke, like I just walked everywhere and I just grew up in this like small little bubble of North Nork, which was, uh, wasn't as scary as like West or South Nork. And so grew up uh, kind of seeing that interaction in the barbershop. When I was super young, I remember just how important they felt to me in the community. And these barbers showed up to work every day with a shirt and tie, class acts, you know, everyone wanted their time. People came in and they always like admired them, wanted to talk to them. And so I knew these guys are important when so I was they, a kid. So the barbers were like the local heroes. In, in they were like the local heroes. Yeah. Blanco's Barbershop. They're still there. The dad just passed away. I think he was in his 90s, probably like 95. And uh, him and my grandfather were really close. My grandparents were like a big part of my childhood growing up. They influenced me a lot. And I'm fortunate that I grew up in a three-family house where it was my great-grandparents on the first floor, me and my parents and my brother on the second floor, and my grandparents on the third floor. So I thought everyone grew up with their grandparents and their great-grandparents. I mean, it, was, it, it changed the way I looked at things, you know, growing up with you know, my family that came from Cuba, um, the scrappiness and the work hard and the perseverance. like to like a whole nother level. So that was engraved in me from the beginning. Like we didn't quit or gave up on doing anything. Like everything was hard work, dedicated. Once you started doing something, you never finish it without, you never quit without finishing it. So this influence of the barbershop from a young age, I realized uh, also back in the 90s, like if you didn't get your hair cut every week, like kids in school would make fun of you. It was like a thing where yes, culturally. I can attest to that. Yeah, especially urban in the cultures. Bronx. Yes, I grew up in the Bronx. And yeah, if you didn't have a fresh cut showing up to school Monday morning, you were this. You were, nice, you were yeah. a loser. If you didn't have nice sneakers on. Yeah. And, so anyway, that was part of the culture. So the, these, I admire these, these guys. And they were twins. It was the father and the twins. And um, then I moved to California when I was 13. And I went to high school in California. I was starting to kind of get into trouble. I think my parents kind of got the idea from watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now that I look back on it, and I asked my mom, and she says, yeah, that was kind of like the move. Um, growing up in Newark, the high school would have been really bad. I would have had to go to Barringer. So they were like, we're going to move you with your auntie and uncle in Temecula, California. And so I went to high school across the country at 13 years old at Temecula Valley High School. It's a kid from Newark with like Timberland boots on, army fatigues, a Tommy Hilfiger shirt, like a Yankee hat on backwards, barber, uh, like inspired by barbers at that time. And I was like starting to like cut my brother's hair and like mess around, like cutting my dad and my grandfather's hair. And uh, I moved out there. First day I went to a barber shop locally and he didn't know how to cut my hair. And I went home and fixed it. At a I used my uncle's like beard trimmer and I just started fixing my haircut. And then the next day I show up at school and everybody's like, where'd you get that haircut? And I'm like, I did it. And they're like, can you cut my hair? And I was like, absolutely. And I started bringing kids over the house um, to cut their hair. And my aunt and uncle were like, what is going on here? And kids would just like show up and like 
by like a year, by like my sophomore year, I was like cutting hair in the bathrooms in school. And there was like, the school was like a big campus. So I would cut class to go cut hair in the bathroom. And um, I just started developing like a knack for it. And I never, no one ever taught me. I just like learned by watching. So I'm a visual learner, learn by watching. So from 13, 14, 15, 16, I moved back here to New Jersey. My parents moved out of Newark and we moved to Belleville. Nicer scenario there. We're living over by Branchbrook Park. And we went to, I went to Belleville High School at the end of my junior year and senior year. By then I'd already been, you know, kind of, three years in and I was uh, having kids show up to the house that we had in Belleville and they would be in my room, like I was cutting hair out of my bedroom uh, as like a 16 year old kid. And I remember my parents were coming home from work one day and there was like a couple kids in the living room playing like Super Nintendo. There was a bunch of other kids in the kitchen eating bowls of cereal. And my parents come in and they're like, who are all these kids? And I'm like, mom, these are my customers. <laughs> like. You know, we're giving them cereal, like I'm taking care of them. My brother would like play basketball outside with them just to keep them entertained. We're talking about like 10, 15 kids show up to my house like every day. And so eventually they were like, okay, he got influenced. You know what? Go to the garage and go cut hair in the garage. So after like a year of that, my mom was like, you got to go get a job at like a salon. So, so luckily. So your mom recommended getting, oh. Getting a job at a salon so that you could learn how to run the business. Got it. Exactly. Well, luckily, I also had family members that owned hair salons. So, like, my aunt owned a bunch of salons in, like, Cranford, Elizabeth. And then I had the influence of these, these barbers. So they saw that. They were like, oh, he wants to kind of be like that. That's a good career move, you know? And back then, it was, you know, my parents were super supportive. But it wasn't common that someone would support like that industry, because they'd be like, oh, you know, hairdressers, barbers, they don't really make much of themselves. And I think that was the, immediately what I wanted to disprove. I was like, I wanna be more than that. I didn't wanna just be what people thought I was. And um, I wanted to like kind of prove them wrong in a way mm. and kind of give them like a different way for, for me to do my thing. So I started working at a hair salon when I was 16 and I've been doing hair since then. I fast forward. Um, I got to about like 1920. That's when Juan touched on the uh, the car accident. When I was 19, I was driving and just like a normal heading to some friend's house and got into a pretty serious car accident. Almost lost my life. My face was lacerated. Um, um, my intestine was severed. Uh, not to get too too, but like there was a fatality. It was a pretty serious car accident. Um, I almost didn't make it. They the Hospital gave my parents, they said, they've got like 48 hours to live. So like that threshold of death, like at a very young age, um, put me in a very uncomfortable place, especially because I was pretty much like a perfect kid. And then all of a sudden I had scars all over my face. My face was disfigured. You know, I lost all motor function on the right side of my face. Um, it was very hard, the room's very quiet. and. It's okay. The story ends up really good. I'll tell you the rest. Um, so, so that, if I could interject for a second, so that in essence gave you some newfound perspective on yeah, man. like what the purpose of life is, so to speak. Yeah, man. Absolutely. It was like, uh, like coming that close to death really like helped me appreciate life right. a lot more. Um, and then this is a good reminder. Um, I still have the scars to remember. You know, when I look in the mirror. 
the scars are there to remind me that like you've been through a lot, you've come from a lot. Um, you know, not only growing up where you grew up in the time that you grew up, but you know, with the family that raised you and then being able to make it through so much. I knew that I was like made for more. I knew that I was built to do more. Right. Um, and so after a couple of years of rehab and therapy, you know, came out on the other side, then I decided to like completely rehabilitate myself. So I started um, weightlifting and bodybuilding and like the world of like exercise and eating healthy kind of was introduced to me at like 20, 21 years old. Um, so then like taking care of myself kind of became a thing, you know, like I need to take care of myself. Um, and at that time I also was working at a shop, a salon that like I didn't feel 100% comfortable with. It was like not the atmosphere I wanted to be around. I was kind of like in there and kind of thinking like, this is not for me. So I started my own shop when I was 21 years old, 20, 21 years old. So a couple years after the accident, I realized like, this is exactly what I need to do. Um, I knew what I wanted to do with it. The first shop I had was a two chair shop. It was in Belleville, it was above a tanning salon. And I had no sign outside, no one knew I was there, but I was working from like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every single day, minus Sundays, I'd take off. And uh, that's also when I met my wife. Uh, we worked together, she helped me build that business. We eventually outgrew that space, um, and which led me to the first salon that I opened, which was a five-chair salon in Lynnhurst. Um, fast forward, that was 2009. We had my first son, Ethan, um, and a business and got married all within one year. Wow. So life has always been kind That's of That's a busy year. Busy year, 2009. Um, and then from there, it was scaling and building a business and building a brand. Uh, luckily, I had some understanding of it, but I just had a lot to learn, you know? And, it, and the truth still remains that you still, as an entrepreneur, are learning every day. There's still so much more for us to understand about um, our business and how it relates to you know, people and their perception. Uh, but from there, five chair salon to 15 years ago um, when we opened Substance uh, and then 10 years that we've been here in Rutherford on Park Ave. Nice, very, very, very nice. I gave Definitely you the fast forward version of my story. <laughs> no, I yeah. appreciate that. Um, so transitioning over to, um, for those of you that have been to New York, this microphone is a little challenging for me, sorry. Um, as a, as a fellow New Yorker, I, I grew up in the Bronx and migrated to Queens. Um, I remember going to college, I went to Baruch, and I would, I would remember during like class breaks getting an urge for something, this amazing aroma in the city, caramel, um, you know, like just you could smell the, pro, the, the, the nuts being baked. And I used to always get, you know, nuts for nuts, those carts, they're plastered all over New York City. For those of you that are New Yorkers that have traveled to New York in the past like three decades, you've definitely come in contact with them. Um, this gentleman right here to my left, Alejandro Rad, is uh, the founder of Nuts for Nuts. He's uh, somewhat of a food icon, I would say, uh, or a food staple um, in, in New York. Um, originally from Argentina. Argentina. Originally from Argentina. Um, so why don't you go ahead and give us the backstory, Alejandro, on how you came up with this idea, how you got here. Well, in reality, I mean, before, you know, before going back, uh, at the the candy roasted nuts, which is actually was called garrapiñada, 
wasn't actually my creation. It actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the 19th century. The rumors are that uh, a French guy brought it to Buenos Aires back then. Okay. And he started roasting on the streets in Buenos Aires. And it became a very popular thing. And uh, it's been all over the world, basically, before, actually. I, I gave kind of a name to it. However, I, I grew up in a family that um, there was always business people. You know, didn't create anything, any big structure, but it was always people trying to be independent. My father was an independent person, my mother as well. She was always working in something. He was working in, 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 in different businesses. So um, I was the fifth in a big family. So somehow I got all that in my genes, but I was always doing the will of my older brothers and siblings. So I was somehow, I needed to find my way out. Mm. So when, um, when college, when uh, high school was finishing, uh, we got a year where uh, you're supposed to be, uh, be prepared to enter into the university. And a couple of friends gave me the idea to, you know, why we don't go away someplace, somewhere, before we enter into this world of college and, and all that. So we were analyzing the places, and then at the end of 1989, I came to uh, New York uh, as an institute called American um, Spanish Institute on 43rd Street by the New York Times. Um, and then, of course, I was very limited in money. I was a student in New York, and I was seeing these fancy restaurants and these nice ladies eating there, and I was counting the pennies in my pocket. And then um, it was a second, it was a cousin, but it was a second cousin who I hear was doing some uh, street business. And one of them was doing the shish kebab, brought by the Greeks. And another one was doing the honey roasted nuts. So I started working some of the weekends, and I saw that it was, it was very rudimentary back then. It was very basic. The card was very primitive, was unlicensed. So I went back and forward to Argentina a few times, but I was building in my head uh, the possibility to do something with it. So finally, at the end of 1990, I came back and I was working for someone, but I was already the idea to own my own uh, um, business related with that. And I hear it was someone that he was selling a couple of these cards with a very old truck. I remember the price was like 17,000. And I had no money. But when I came back, I put myself and in November and December of 1990, I worked very, very hard. Like they were talking about this many hours. So I was filling out the cards. At that time it was only peanuts. Cashews and ammo did not exist. Okay, so I was filling up the cart with the nuts and I was going to Times Square, Fifth Avenue, and I was walking and I said, I will not come back until I don't sell everything I got. Really? Yeah, yeah, so I was working, so I was in Fifth Avenue, Sixth Avenue, Fifth Avenue, and then when I didn't sell enough, I was going to Times Square and I stayed with the worst kind of a people, the worst kind. I don't know you guys remember what oh, was yeah. New York I remember. <laughs> at that time. Yeah. And the smell was bringing all these guys, you know, from the subway, and, and my car was around, the kind of an element. 
And it was, but they were there because of the smell and the, and the, so of course you gotta give them a little bit, you know, free all the time, they got no money, but it was this kind of a dynamic there and I was making, so in March of 1991, that was finally I make an offer to this guy, I offered him 14,000, he gave me that, the, the little car, and that's how I start. And, um, and the expansion from there was uh, people asking for a job. Mm -hmm. So I was getting, at that time, like I said, the car was very small. So I developed in my mind, I say, but what if, if I put two copper balls? And at that time, the city said that the new regulation was going to be that the car needed to have a water system, self-contained with water system. So it was actually the one that did the changes at that time to become, uh, 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 to create bigger numbers on the sales. So each car back then cost around $3,500. Again, without roof or without anything like that. And, and this and, cart for context is about, uh, what, four feet or six feet it's wide? about four feet and a half by yeah. two and a quarter, yes. Okay. And uh, so it has a system with a propane, two burners, copper bowl, water system. And I was able to put that inside a truck. And that's how I began. So I was getting a new guy asking me for a job that I was ordering. So the card was being made by a Greek guy in, um, in, in um, Sunnyside in Queens. But one day I, was, I got lost. I was looking for something in Chinatown. And I got lost and I saw this Chinese place where they building stuff for restaurants, things for restaurants. Mm. So I came down over there and I met Sylvia, who barely speak in English. I was very limited in English as well. So somehow we communicate. And I told her <laughs> that I wanted to do a card that I needed to have two couple bowls with a water system. So in the back and forward, they built the first car as the one you know now. Oh, wow. Okay. So from there, I was uh, building more and more of these cars. And people were copying me about what I was doing, some of the, the remnants of the competition. And then, uh, so the difficult part was to create the locations. Every time you put a car somewhere, vendors, management for the buildings, people come, say you gotta get out. But before, before you thought about kind of creating it and building it out, because um, Renee kind of touched on something before that, that I think I interjected on, is she kind of gave herself this goal post, right? Like she kind of said that, you know, I'll secure this space and then figure out how to pay for it after in essence. It sounds like you did something very similar, and it seems to be, a, I think Manny had a kind of a similar example in, in, in his respective journey on becoming an entrepreneur. It seems like that seems to be the common thread in successful founders is that you, you kind of give yourself this goal and you use that as a means to validate that you actually have something. In the tech world, we call it like product market fit, right? So you kind of gave yourself this goal of selling all these nuts before you went home and that, I would imagine, um, was what kind of gave you that sense of confidence that you actually had something there. Like this idea was worth exploring. It's, Is that a fair um, assessment or no? Um, I'm not so sure how really came out. I mean, I, I, I'm a passionate guy and I always wanted to have my time for many things in life. I always wanted to have my, my freedom and my time. But in order to be able to get there, you gotta get uh, uh, things going first. And sometimes you don't know what the price of that is gonna be, or you don't know what the, the effort that it's gonna require to make that happen. Mm. So putting all that together on a, on a pot, you know, 
I saw the possibility to make something with the product. You know, the, the good thing about the, the honey roasted nuts is actually when you on the streets, because I was a vendor for a few years, is that most of the time when people came and buy, they have a smile on their face. They know that a good time was coming. And it's not, it's not like a regular time when you're going to have a lunch or you're going to have a breakfast and somehow, yes, you will enjoy it. You probably go to a place to have a, your good coffee. But somehow it's part of uh, the structure of life. You don't wake up thinking, I'm going to eat honey roasted nuts. <laughs> you're just walking by and suddenly the moment, <laughs> you know, it's like this ice cream and this movement and, and you're articulating and you know that when you're cooking and suddenly somebody stop and then turn into your car and then in one moment you know that person is going to smile. Yeah. It's going to smile. It's going to be so a moment of... The aroma is the trigger. It's, yes. Is, is that, I can so, smell it now. Like I can smell it right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, and also creating the location because I was going to different uh, uh, neighbors in New York so my uh, first location was, I was put in the current weekends in Soho, but my actually first location was 52nd and 3rd, okay? okay? And then from there, I started going to different locations, and everywhere was a very different neighborhood, very different vibe, but everywhere was a problem to open up a car. Mm. And I got this adrenaline, this challenging about opening up a car in a new location, and I know it was going to be a fight, whatever reason it was going to be a fight. And at one point I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm ready to fight. You mean like in terms of competition? Everything, everything. Competition, physically, with everything. <laughs> <Okay>. Everything. <laughs> because uh, think about it, there is, an, there, is a, there is an harmonic situation, there is, there is an equilibrium situation in a corner on the street in New York. There are certain quantity of vendors, right. there are city regulations. When someone new pops up... Yeah, you're on their turf. It's a problem. And, 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 and everyone is frustrated with the city, and the city is frustrated with themselves and the, the, the authorities and their regulations. So every time I was put in a new car, so I was basically in the environment where I was. I was the only person that I was willing to challenge everything that it was in that moment. Mm. I don't mind to fight vendors to find the owner of the building. I was without any fear, and I was able to talk to the police and you know, explain my situation. Mm. And if it needed to go physically, I will go physically. I have no fear you're, you're back ready. then. Yeah. Yeah. And so the investment and the, and the hiring people and all that, it happens in the process that I was getting more and more understanding about not only a business, but also my personal the need for my time. And then, of course, you know, I wanted to save some money, go back to Argentina, establish myself, go back to university. You know, my father put in pressure. They didn't like the idea. I had to hide in the beginning that I was selling in New York, mm. not on the street. That wasn't something that it will make them pride at all. So... Um, Did you feel, because uh, I think Manny touched on that, like the, the social pressures that you face, um, by kind of having to create yeah, this I mean, sense of belonging. Look, Did you have names, that as well? Yeah, of course. The names, you know, it's, it's, it's a different says, you know, I'm developing a business on the nuts on the street than saying I'm a doctor, an engineer, or, uh, you know, an architect, or people with those uh, well-known titles and somehow defined. And was that a driving force as well? Because I think Manny touched on an, an interesting point that also tends to 
you know, drive successful entrepreneurs. Like, you want to prove the naysayers wrong. Like, a lot of people say, oh, you're not going to... No, no I, didn't, I didn't see that. What I was, yeah. what I was looking is I, I was, at one point, I say, I want to save 25000 Then, you know, six months later, I say, no, no, I want to save 50000 Later, 100000 you know. So the numbers are starting to, you know, grow. And, and I, I was always with the sensation I was going to walk out from the business. I was going to walk out of the business. But I have to say, though, New York City, Manhattan... Mm -hmm. And this is something that probably no one went through that experience because very rare you get to see that. Once you stay on the streets in New York City and you bending on the street and you get used to, to the street, what you get to see, the experience you get to live, the conversation you get to have to the people, the dynamic, you can no longer... Mm -hmm. You're a misfit. You're no longer fit in any office whatsoever. You cannot be in between four walls. It's just, at one point in my car, it was fire department, the ambulance talking with me, the driver of the limousine, the guy coming from the store. They were telling me the stories. And then, of course, you know, I was a single, so you go to the location, you see a beautiful girl, you go out with a girl, then nothing works, and you say, I need to put a guy here because I can no longer be there when this girl <laughs> swings by. So that's suddenly how the business was growing as well. It's just, you know, the dynamic of life. And then, of course, when you want to live the night, the life of New York City the way it should be lived, right? Yes. When you want to have a nice car and a nice apartment and you want to go to these fancy places, no money is enough. So for me, opening up a more location was actually representing, say, I need to open one more car because those are the ones that I want to drink. Now I need to mm -hmm. open one more car because those are the places I want to go on vacation. So you start adding that yourself, and suddenly you were developing a business that it was, it was hard to explain how it became, but yeah, it wanted to live experiences, wanted to have a life, but also needed to know how to deal with the situation in order to grow. Was so that easy. that's actually a great segue into kind of the next topic. How, how, at what point, Renee, did you kind of figure out that you already had something established and, you know, how did you kind of go about scaling that, right? Like meaning, like how did you go about hiring your first hire or how did you know that you had to hire like X amount of people and, and build the business out and kind of develop a different geographic footprint perhaps on social media, that kind of thing? Um, so it's, it's definitely um, a lot bigger than it was when it started, but I kind of have the same mentality where I feel like I still need to like handle it myself. Mm. So I don't like to do too much because it kind of scares me, to be honest. Like, I don't know how you did that. Like, um, I ha I'm anxious just listening to you tell me how you continue to put more streetcars. <laughs> like, I don't think I would be able to do that, but um, we grew organically so that I could, it's bigger, but I still can handle it. You know, um, I just, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of like, I kind of like where it is right now. You know, mm. I do want to eventually. Can I, ask, can I, can I uh, yeah, 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 for sure. So, let's see let's one talk. of the persons working with you. Let's see you've been working with a person for a while. And yeah. that person is very, very capable. Yeah. Yet, you got some, some issues, but you know, each person has enough personality to run a place. Yeah. Don't you think that since that person is capable to 
but you can no longer be on the same place. You, you yeah. don't, it's not that you hate each other, but you're fighting or whatever it is. Wouldn't be that good opportunity to maybe sit with a person and say, you know what, this place is too small for both of us. Yet I want to keep in a relationship with you all these years that I spent with you or the knowledge you have or you have learned from me and I want you to be my competition. Let's open another store. And they happen the same. That person is going to have a manager in one day. Then he's <laughs> yeah. Renee's be. like, yeah, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What, no, what you're describing I mean, actually is, is very, very, very common. Like in, yeah. in a tech startup space, like it's called co-founder dynamics. Like it's a lot of, look at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, when he started the company, you recognize as him being the solo founder, but that's not the reality, right? Yeah. You had Eduardo, you had um, Sean Parker. There were, there were a few other players there. But you know what ends up happening is sometimes there's a conflict of interest, and you know one founder wants to go left, the other founder wants to go right, and yes, that is a very difficult thing to navigate. Like those those respective disputes. Um, I don't know if you were about to touch on that, uh, Renee. No, I or... wouldn't. I wouldn't do. I mean, now like the way my business model is set up, I would have to change it to for me to grow. It, I didn't. I didn't make Erie to be anything to to grow. Like the whole point of it is that I do everything there myself. Like that's the whole point of the whole bakery. But now, as a creative, mm -hmm. I see that I want to do other things that is not necessarily you know just confining myself you know to my small coffee shop and bakery. I love what it is, and I want it to to stay what it is because that's what I created. But in order for me to grow, I would need to do something else. And I wouldn't, I, I would, I have like other ideas of things that I want to do. And I'm very slowly, you know, putting that into the universe. Mm. But I, I like the way my business is. I'm not trying to go on a million vacations. I'm not trying to like make a lot of money. I, I do it because I actually really just like to go to work every day and do the same things every day and come back. It's... I don't know. I, I, a part of me does want to do more and grow, but the other part really does just like my life, and I like to enjoy my family, and I come home from work, and I pick my kids up from school, and like I'm learning how to do both. And when you yeah. do grow, it's hard to, to be able to handle all of that. Yeah, I don't know. They, Personally, that's how I am. I like to be on top of everything, so I've, I think that would just be a little difficult for me. They often say... For entrepreneurs, that, that balances this fallacy that doesn't really exist. Um, I tend to believe in that. Uh, when I was building my company, for example, there was nothing else outside of that. It was like not even an eight-hour, 10-hour, 12-hour endeavor. It was like 14, sometimes 16-hour endeavor. Like every waking minute, I was thinking, okay, how do I grow this thing, right? And it is, it is a very difficult challenge that sometimes a lot of people who, um, who are entrepreneurs or, or looking to become entrepreneurs aren't really told that, that's kind of like behind the scenes, that's, that's the reality of the situation versus this perception that, you know, you can have all of it. And, and um, I think it's really interesting that you touch on that, Renee, because it, I do agree with you. It is a, it's a balancing act that's almost impossible, you know? And, and Manny, I think you and I spoke, uh, not to put you on the spot, but we, I think, touched on this a little bit when you were opening up uh, Be Well about the, the challenges and kind of navigating both family life and professional life. How, how do you cope with that? as an entrepreneur. That's a really good point. I mean, you think about scaling, growing, right? But there's a cost. And because you have a limited amount of bandwidth, energy that you can put out towards whatever you're doing, um, it, you know, it, it makes you have to work a little smarter. 
uh, one of the things that is helpful, I guess, maturing is realizing that you can't do everything on your own. And so just starting off, like I had to do everything. I had to design the space. I had to, you know, do all the work to make sure that everything was done perfectly. Um, and not that that has to be sacrificed, but at the same time, you know, you realize there's a certain amount of energy and also I start getting a little bit older and realizing like I'm not in my 20s or my 30s anymore mm. and my kids are getting older. The wake-up call for me with that one was the first 10 years of uh, running and operating the salon, I devoted everything to growing that business, scaling the business, training, traveling, you know, doing shows, everything I possibly could to grow my career. And then I woke up one day and it was my son's 10th birthday. And I realized I haven't really been his father for the last 10 years. I've been a business owner that would hang out with my kids on the weekend. And that kind of shook me. And I was like, yeah, I got to spend time with my kids because he's going to be 15 soon. And well, now he's 13, he's going to be 14, but <laughs> he will be 15 in a matter of, you know, yeah. a couple of years. And you know, it's a similar story with like all my family. It's like just worked all the time and then gave the, you give like the remaining balance to your kids, which is always the frustrated, tired, and emotionally drained version of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You give so much towards like your business. And it was for me just like learning from other entrepreneurs. So I'm loving this. I'm just like soaking all this up right now because Alex, you have so much in experience and wisdom and Renee hearing your story is like things are already like turning in my head but um it was like learning from other people I always think Manny at 50 like what is Manny at 50 gonna thank Manny at 44 mm. and how is he gonna like look that. back and be like yeah that's my measuring stick like how do how does 70 year old version of me if I meet you know him now how's he gonna tell me he's like he's never gonna say you should work more He's going to say, go spend time with your kids. Go coach his basketball team. So that was what I did. I just made the time. You make the time for the things that are important. So I started coaching my son's soccer team, basketball team, trying to make all of the events. Look, tonight my daughter had a piano recital that, you know, I couldn't make, but she understands because I'm pretty much at everything else and almost sometimes too available. Uh, but at the <laughs> same time, they'll appreciate it one day. And I know that I'm there for them. And I feel that the role as a father or a mother is incredibly crucial in a child's life growing up, having the confidence that their parents are there for them, um, that they're present, and just wanting to be a better version of myself and you know, wanting to balance that time, self-improvement and developing myself as a human first and as a husband and a father and an entrepreneur. It's that balance. It's like always looking to improve mm. that version of yourself. I kind of put them in different boxes. And then I'm like, am I spending too much time in this box as a business owner? Okay, let's go shoot some hoops outside. You know, let's go to the park. Let's go for a walk. And it's, it's a tricky tightrope to yeah. balance on. No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. You, you brought up a really good example about how to use uh, time right, as, as kind of a measuring stick. Um, so in that same vein, what would you give the 19-year-old version of yourself advice on 
if the 19-year-old Manny was to start a business today? Like looking back on it now, what would be the advice you would give to you know a young aspiring entrepreneur in their you know in their teenage years or early twenties? Yeah, you're you're doing great. I'm so proud of you. Just keep working hard. It's all gonna come. Don't don't like be patient. Good things come to those who wait, and don't try and rush something good. You know, uh, the difficult things are the things you should do. Okay. Don't. Don't do the easy stuff. The easy stuff, you know, there's so many ways to make money right now online. Every time I'm on Instagram, it's like, you can make $6,000 selling Legos a month. And I'm like, should I start selling Legos? So focus, basically. Don't, yeah, don't like, get distracted. Don't get distracted Good. by, like, you could make a little money doing this. You could do this. You Good could advice. do that. Like, yeah, my wife had to remind me of that today. And I'm like, I think we should sell Legos. I think, I think I'm going to be an affiliate marketer for Legos. <laughs> All right, Renee, same, same question. What would you give, uh, you know, the 19-year-old version of yourself advice on if, if she wanted to be an Probably aspiring entrepreneur? Probably the same. Yeah, pretty much the same. I mean, just to continue to do what you love, you know, and you'll find, you'll find the happiness in that. Okay. It's your turn. Alejandro? <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Um, uh I, I do think that our, you know, circumstances are extremely personal. And I do think that there are millions of ways that people can find a path in life. Uh, my experience is not necessarily should be the one that... Uh, but I don't see any other way out in terms of being able to own more of your time. Mm than develop more your, your relationship with the planet you're living in by develop something that says something about yourself. And I don't talking about to other people, I'm talking about to yourself. So the advice that I will give an 18 years old will be Okay, um, don't take nothing very personal. Mm. Don't take nothing very personal because you have to allow the freedom to make mistakes. You have to allow yourself like the one. room like to lot, live actually. your own your own life because that's, this is not a specific rule. So sometimes I'm looking back, I became father with like almost 44, almost 45, and sometimes I say I would love to have them a little bit younger. So when I go back, when I was 10 years before, and I, and I saw my life, I said, but it was impossible for me to be father in that circumstances in life. Yeah, I Would remember. I change that? No, because I was so in love with New York. I was so in love with business and, and, and with my own time that I couldn't, perf- you know, I couldn't stop my development as a human being by becoming a father in that moment because I was going to screw both. Being a father and, and my personal experience. So I'm not so sure what the advice will be. I know that everything requires a lot of sacrifice. Everything requires a lot of sacrifice. And um, but it's not the same thing about forcing things. It's not the same. But I do think that people need to have enough room to make mistakes. Uh, they don't have to feel guilty. They don't have to give answers to anyone. And and always look for the best, you know, keep looking for the best, but don't put pressure. That's what I say, don't put pressure. Do whatever you have to do, 
do you have to do work very hard, but do not get into that situation where you need to compare yourself with other people or like. And the other thing is, don't borrow money from the bank, then you can't repay. That's another <laughs> one. You know, please go slowly, go with your own money, try to get money between friends. Or you know what? The basis when you actually do it your own business, the real formula. I get one bottle, I sell by two, sell by four. Right. The old formula. That's the way to go. When you go to the bank and they end up in the world that you don't even own yourself anymore. And you just end up hating your life and all that. So my advice will be take it easy, work hard, be free. Awesome. I think that's a great note to, uh, to leave it on. So um, what I'd like to do now is maybe open it up to see if anybody has questions in the audience. Um, there could be generic questions on just starting a business or you know, more personally rooted questions on their respective stories. Um, so uh, I'll kind of open it up to the audience, see if anybody has any questions. All right, we got one in the back, love it. Yeah, so Instagram actually really helped us. Um, I started with zero followers, and I don't have that many followers, but I didn't buy any of my followers, so I'm pretty proud of that. Um, and I just continued to use it and tag people, and people tag people, and uh, it's a great way to spread the word. I had like this weird thing about not paying for advertisement, um, like I, like usually when you have like a business build out, there's like advertisement, how much are you willing to spend? And I was like, I'm not spending any money on advertisement. I'll do it myself. And I just kind of really did push the whole Instagram thing. I'm still trying to figure out TikTok. I don't think it's for me, but I, I will figure it out. I know it's like really great right now, but, Didn't they just um, ban it in one of the States, I think? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, right. It is. Montana, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, What's that? MySpace. MySpace. Oh, yeah. I love MySpace. No, I love Instagram. I think it's great. It's a great way, you know, to just to share with people, you know. I find so, I, that's how I find places now. I just click on a geotag and I'm like, okay, let me see what I can find because it's so different than Googling things now. I find like great food places just by clicking on a geotag and then I look at pictures and whatever looks good to me, then I click on that and then I find a place that wasn't like I didn't even know existed. That's great. Yeah, yeah it, it is a great promotional tool. I feel like social media all up is a phenomenal way to just like promote. If you have something to promote, use it. I mean, that's a platform for it, for sure. Uh, all right, cool, we do. All right, we have a few questions. Um, start over there. Okay, uh, question for Renee. Uh, how was becoming a mother? Uh, did it affect your business or your own work? Um, it was really, it's, it's very hard. Um, I have that, like, mother's guilt when I leave for work every day. I just feel, like, really terrible, but... That happens to all moms that go to work, you know? It's not just me, it's like a lot of moms work. My mom worked my whole life, but I'm very lucky because my mom watches my kids and my grandparents watched me. So it's like kind of a nice thing, you know? But it is, it's hard because you don't go home 
after working and turn off. You go home and you have another job, you know? It's like you got to make dinner, you got to get everybody in the bath and but it's 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 beautiful. It's beautiful. It's what I always wanted, you know? A business and my kids. My husband. Hi, Joe. Yeah. Yeah, so that it's what I wanted. Uh, I think there was another question over there right behind. Okay, Nuts for Nuts in the beginning, uh, it was called Nuts About Nuts. It was a yellow, very terrible graphics than I did. It was uh, this yellow thing with the letters and you stick on it. And then um, I got Sue. Uh, it was a, it was a, <laughs> I love the brutal honesty. I love it. It was a it was a, a, a Hasidic guy in Brooklyn who actually had the brand already nuts about nuts and in the old store, and he got a register. So he so and then you know I was I was already at that time uh, getting closer to being in a partnership with my actual uh, business partner now, and um, so we were how are we gonna overcome this? So I was thinking that's four nuts with the F O R and then it became the number four. So it was a lady, it was an Italian lady that actually helped us, you know, put it together. It was, uh, it was different back then, it was a circle. The whole thing evolved into what it is right now in like, about 1997, 1998. However, I've been a little bit, uh, this, I dissociate myself a little bit with whatever it has to do with media. Just maybe it's something in my mind that, uh, you know the phone and and this concept around. So I'm not. I don't have. I'm not into like personally. Not the brand. The brand is in Facebook and Instagram and all that. Myself, I'm not into those. Uh, but my business partners is working uh, hard right now to uh, put it over there. And like I say, we the, the brand got designed and then we did a website. You can go notfornuts.com. Everyone, please go and visit it. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, one need one always need an improvement. But I think that I starting to understand from the designer point of view how important it is to actually have the right uh, um, concept visually, because we're getting into these big screens and we're getting addicted to the screen. So, as much as I like to think that I can force my way in by cooking nuts and with the smell and getting a busy corner and fighting the Egyptians. Still, still is, is the media now the one that is going to actually bring the future? Are we going online and we got to be, we got to develop ourselves into it? No question about it. Yeah. Uh, Renee and May? Uh, we, so Erie's logo is actually based off of the actual Erie train. Um, if you, the, the, rail, the Rutherford Railroad Station is Erie, um, and it was kind of a play off of that. And the train that connected uh, New Jersey to New York to Detroit, and it was, uh, I, I like literature, I like history, like I thought it was really interesting. I still think it's really in interesting. And um, it's kind of a play off of that. And then 
the the in, the interior my husband does and he um he makes my days at work amazing because it's so cute in there and he puts nice plants for me and it's kind of like not being at work because it's just such a nice place to be and hang out in and like it's just chill your environment's like your environment's important you know you gotta you gotta take anything out that doesn't make you happy so everything there makes me happy yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, creating your space to first you love it and then hope, hopeful in that moment that because you love it and you're considering others with the use of color or, you know, the way things look, um, I think that that's a really important key to business is first aesthetically making sure that it's pleasing to everyone um, and that anyone all walks of life could appreciate at least the the intention that is put into things. Um, for me, I'm a creative. I'm an artist. You know, um, I had a vision for creating a wellness brand, a company that could help others. You know, find their own health journey and be able to share that with others. And we were very inspired uh, from visiting California, and because I lived in California, juice bars and like salad bars and, and places like that were very popular. And we emulated a lot of, you know, that scene that I remember walking down like Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach and walking to like the juice bars there. And there were just, it's it's a scene, it's, a, it's its own environment. And uh, being that there was nothing like that in this area, we knew that that's the vibe or the culture that we wanted to bring in. Um, and then just, being incredibly intentional about how you design what you pick out. Like, I think that is the fun part, but it's also the grueling, emotionally draining, mentally draining part about like being up till three in the morning, choosing seats or researching, you know, wallpapers or finding, you know, um, you know, pots and pans or whatever it is that like, it's, it's the love and dedication that you put into it. It's not like, I'll just buy one from Amazon. Oh, I'll just get this is cheap. I'll get it. Um, it's more of like, well, what is that going to look like? What is it going to feel like when you walk in? And what type of like emotion are people going to get? Are they going to be happy walking in? Um, and for me, that was that was important. First, important for me to love it, and then for my wife and I to uh, make those decisions. She couldn't be here, by the way, guys, but she's really the owner of Be Well. We run it together. She is incredible. And her eye for design, and she's helped refine mine, and we kind of do it together. But, you know, it's really like a labor of love and putting a lot of intention and detail into what you're doing. Awesome. Um, and it does show in, in both of your respective places. Uh, I believe there's a question over here. Good question. Uh, okay, I'll go first. <laughs> um, the external challenges is always, I think, it's, it's in one moment when you develop any business, uh, it always needs money. You know, there's a moment where you, you know, you need, you need juice. You need, to, and that's, that's where you thinking how you're going to restructure, what you're going to do. That's one of the most difficult ones. And internally, a lot has to do with your own ego. Um, 
right now I was uh, telling my wife recently that I feel like a little bit like a slave because some people has been working for me for many years and in any business you have people that have, that has done better than another ones not for not it's a it's a brand and it's a different places on the city some people have different locations or we are in uh, some private events and and people have been waiting for the opportunity to make more money and the guy who's making the money don't want to let the other one get their place to make the money so at the moment, you have to understand that you also have a limit. You cannot solve everybody's life. You know? So I've been having recently some situation and people say, how come you give the opportunity to these people but you haven't given it to us? And at one moment, you can take that like personally and it becomes an internal pressure because you become like unfair. How am I going to be able to do that for this person? They were able to do this financially and the other person can't. I think it's one of the most difficult places because you you start not owning yourself. You start now having to satisfy people's appetites for their own interests and their own ambitions, and they put it in, in, in your back. I think in my opinion, this is one of the most difficult ones. And it's always a solution. It's not a solution. Always it's getting bigger, more cards, more items, more money, and it's not the answer necessarily in business. You know, it's it, it, that sensation. Oh, we need more money. We need to expand. Because, and, you know, at one point you got to put a limit in terms of, like, you know, what expansion really means. So externally is the need of money. You need money. And internally is when you're saying enough is enough. Or how are you going to get to the next step? But you got to let other people take it. Renee, Manny? Um, for me personally, externally would be uh, staffing. Uh, it's really hard to find the right people for my bakery. Um, we do everything from scratch by hand. So I look for experienced people. Um, I look for people that want to learn. And I kind of look at it as like, if you're going to, if I invest in you, you invest in me kind of thing. So I do... Um, I just, I, I try to find the right people and I curate the bakery kind of around that. And I really do put a lot of faith in people. Internally, I'm still a business owner, uh, but I do take things personally. So when things don't work out, I get really upset and it, it, it stresses me out and it's unnecessary because you're supposed to be like the boss, you know, and not, not take things personally, but I do. Um, so it's kind of like just learning to manage how to be a mentor and also be in charge and like be the boss. So it's always a constant struggle for me because there's so much hard work involved that you actually like need to have knowledge in, you know? Go ahead. That, that's <laughs> a good point you just mentioned about, um, you know, not uh, taking offense or the, I think the stress involved in running a business is underestimated by people. Um, I think we for put sure. on, like right? for sure, for sure. We put on a smile and we just, you know, what else are you gonna do? I'm not gonna complain to everyone, tell you how difficult it is. Although if you're thinking about it, prepare yourself because it's not an easy ride, but it's exciting, it's a journey, it's, it makes you into a better version of yourself. Um, as far as an external challenge, 
I mean, anytime you're you're dealing with like a build out, uh, that's always difficult. You get past that, then it's just opening. Uh, and then once you get open, it's you know hiring staff. We were really blessed. We got some some great people that joined our team who are actually here visiting our Be Well team. So thank you for them. Um, you know, we hire based on like, are they nice people? Are they kind people? Can I see myself like being around them all the time, talking to them, having conversations, asking what they're doing for the weekend? That is the challenge. Sometimes when you find great people to be a part of your team, it's a blessing and it, and it helps propel you forward and do better. Um, you know, I'm always surprised because I don't want to like, you know, assume, but I put faith in people. Um, hope that they're good people. That's you know, it's like ten percent of the people that you put your faith into that actually like step up to it and like do what they're supposed to do, and then everybody else lets you down. A lot of the times, it's like constantly being let down by people. But like Renee said, I can't help but take offense sometimes. Um, I think that's my own personal journey of like wanting to mature more as a as a, a an individual and as a leader is that you know when people you know call out or leave you it's not anything personal with you and you've got to look to other people like they've got their own lives and stuff going on that you know they consider that to be important so that be one and then kind of the internal struggle is the same like being stressed and worried about how am i going to make payroll how am i going to you know pay for my order this week when as an example my uh, payroll company we switched and you know this is just a small thing it's like they decided oh you didn't pay taxes for uh, the last quarter we'll just take them out of your bank account um, but even though we already paid the taxes and so like you know when a bank they take like four thousand dollars out of your bank account like that hurts it's, it makes it very difficult for you to function and run payroll, do things. Um, and there's things like that that happen every day. But you just kind of keep moving. You just keep going forward. You go for a walk, breathe, pray, meditate, take some time. Um, and then you've got to go back to now being your, your, the leader and the business owner there. So I think it's, a, a, it's very much like internally you know maturing as as a leader and and just not taking offense to things but that is that is challenging at times cool um yeah any other questions yeah from a parenting perspective would you want your children to be entrepreneurs and would you want to work with them like in a family business and you think about it since i believe it's the superior path the entrepreneur path to being employed but like i don't think it's for everyone by any they have a better chance of being entrepreneurs watching their parents and growing up in it it's you're right it's not for everyone though yeah. um but I, I would definitely push for them but whatever they choose to do but i think that you know when your parents own a business or family owns a business it just you kind of incline towards that path because you see like okay grandpa did it or so-and-so did it um but i don't know would you want to <laughs> I think so. Yeah. My I grew up in my grandfather's ice cream store. Oh, in the past like few months, I've had my daughter at the bakery with me and my son I like, too. I like seeing and that. And I by like the way. like put them underneath like the flowers bins, yes. and I'm like, this is where you're gonna watch TV for a little, yeah. and they love it. And I 
that's how I grew up. Like, I grew up same way. And you kind of, like, get a little comfortable and a little cocky because you're used to, like, being behind the scenes. Yeah. And when you grow up like that, it's you are more comfortable. And it's it's kind of like it, it feels um, more attainable in a way because it's something that you've been around so you've become accustomed to it. So if that's what they would want to do, by all means, I would totally support that. I almost feel like, I mean, Alejandro, I definitely want to hear from you, but I feel like exposure is what really uh, plays a role in something like that, right? Like it, it becomes more a function of the exposure of your surroundings, so naturally you're going to be inclined to perhaps want to be an entrepreneur if, if your parents were entrepreneurs, even more if they were successful entrepreneurs, right? Um, I, don't, I don't know, do you agree, disagree? Yeah, no, no, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it in my personal life, if I wanted in my kids, because I, I really love, you know, nuts for nuts. Uh, well, the existence, really I'm really nuts for nuts. <laughs> we, we <can> tell. <laughs> and, um, and I wonder in my kids, I mean, who is going to run it in a few years? Yeah. Because seriously, it's a, it's a brand that is not going to die in New York. I really, I mean, I, I, whatever has to be done wrong with the business, it's already happens. Yeah. And the business survives. Yeah, and it survived, means that people already say, you know what, even you can do whatever you want. We want you on the street, and we're going to buy it. If it's not you, I'm going to buy it online. And we're gonna, that's going to exist. It's going to continue. So um, even though the challenges that represent being in New York that uh, uh, looks like, uh, you know, it's, it's a very difficult place to do business, I wonder if my kids will be interested one day to run that for that. I'm not so sure, but I, I don't want to put that pressure on them. But at one moment, I'm gonna, you know, I want to make the comment like, are you going to let the brand be run by somebody else and it's not you? When I don't know. I just... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, they have to do whatever they have to do. I mean, I would like them to be, you know, but I don't know, has to be this route. I don't know, but the brand is they're gonna continue. Trust me, it's a it's an icon in New York City. It's a, it is a staple. People I, I goes to the car, to this come, and they just take pictures and they ask the vendor if they can be behind the car and they, with the bag. It's just a, it's kind of like a yellow taxi, yeah. or like seeing an iconic New York yeah. thing. Like it is, it is a very it's like a hot dog stand, you know, and then like the nuts for nuts stand. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, there has been a couple of events where we go and they call, you know, the radio station and they say, oh, we want an ad for that car. And then I have been in some of these events and people say, wait a second, I hear you the owner of it. And they kind of take a picture with you. And I'm like, dude, this, this is a street bending. You yeah. know, it's not like, but I, I think it's a, it's a good thing that you can, uh, you've been able to do something that your kids could be proud of it. The question is, would they be interested to run something like that? I'm not so sure they can do any other thing. It's just sometimes I'm worried about my own ego and maybe trying to throw the line and say, well, you don't continue and take the chair here and continue with the brand. And I'm not so sure if they continue with this the way it is, is they going to develop themselves? You know, when I hear this family business that the grandfather created and then the guy, the son continue, I'm yeah. not so sure these people are created anymore. Maybe they got money and that's it. You know, I, I'm not so sure if, they, if you're not a founder, how well you develop yourself. So I can't put that pressure on my kids, really, as much as I would like to see the brand going forever. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for volunteers to take the job. <laughs> <laughs> any, any takers out there? Yeah. Question in the back? Uh, I'm 
<laughs> well, you have too much to lose at this stage, yeah. Sound advice. Yeah. Agreed. But of course, I want to ask, uh, that's my thing. <laughs> Good question. So what pitfalls, um, kind of uh, perhaps another way of asking that question, like asking your younger version, um, what would you, like what guidance would you give yourself or what mistakes would you um, have avoided if you could have, you know, like um, what, what pitfalls would you try to stay away from, shortcomings? Um, in my personal experience, what I would say is try to deal less with like uh, government kind of a okay. agency. <laughs> I mean, when you stay clear of the government, okay. right? Yeah. So, no so you know, system. like for example, Nats for Nats have to deal with Department of Health, yeah. building department, uh, fire department, New York City Parks and Recreation. And those are agencies that see you as a problem because they, the people working and those agencies, their public employees, they look at you as a person who is giving them work. Mm. So when you approach the window with a question for them, they say, look, if I say yes or a maybe, I may have to work. But if I say no, then I can keep sitting here with the air conditioning doing nothing. <laughs> so my advice to people will be like in your case, for example, then you open like, you know, yeah, you gotta deal with the landlord, maybe the neighbor, you know, with the trash or something, an employee, that's one thing. But I would say my suggestion will be avoid large institutions that are linked or that are part of the government. Just avoid them. Okay. Completely. Unless you are part of a kind of mafia or some sort of a political, <laughs> but unless you have Avoid a good political so. contact. Yeah. But you want to deal, you want to make the line and go crystal clear about a good citizen and you say, I want to do this straight, don't do that. You're going to be slapped in the face so many times that it's not worth it. Yeah, no, I agree. Regulatory roadblocks are by far the most challenging to overcome. I have nightmare stories where I can go 
on all night about that. Um, I, I agree with you. Regulatory institutions are, are, are a big challenge. Renee, Manny, same, same question. I, I would, yeah, I'd kind of say uh, m making sure your books are good. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely something um, I learned that. Accounting books. Huh, yeah, like make sure records. that you, you have everything in order. I switched accountants three times and then I had an audit and I literally spent like weeks trying to find certain paperwork that I paid these taxes. I don't, I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. So you really do have to be on top of that um, and make sure you keep a log of every single thing that goes in and out of your business. Because if somebody does come and audit you, you need to be able to show that to them. I, just from my experience, I believe that there's really only one mistake you can make. Um, the fatal mistake of giving up. Outside of that, every mistake, it kind of leads you up to your next learning lesson. Um, I heard a quote recently that helped me kind of tie that all together for me because I've made a lot of mistakes. And so I think success is often looked at incorrectly. It, it, people see it from the outside like you're on a mountaintop and you've made it to the top and it's all your wins that kind of got you to the top. But success actually looks like standing on top of all your mistakes that you've made over the years, learning from your mistakes, like make a mistake, learn from it, make a mistake, learn from it. Um, I think you can't teach, even myself, if the future version of me went back and be like, hey man, you gotta do this, man, you don't, I wouldn't listen to me. And that's the truth, how many times do you try to tell your kids things and they don't listen, but then like three years later they go, oh dad, that thing you told me about, yeah, I really like that now, you're right. And so the same thing goes for us, I think that for me personally, um, I have to make mistakes in order to learn. And my success is incredibly dependent on making mistakes, learning from them, and then getting above them. So instead of the mistakes covering me, kind of standing on top of them. So. Awesome. Um, I want to say one more thing based on um, Jimena was talking about two people that start young. I, I disagree with that. Um, but Disagree with what? With, with the fact that people should start business when they're young and they don't have any obligation. Um, I think that we are an accumulation of information. I mean, our life is basically, you have, you know, I'm, I'm 54 and I have the knowledge of my experience and I'm the front runner of that experience, right? So, um, and, and that applied basically as a philosophy of life. Starting a new business, starting in, 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 in a, with a new idea, is like a new beginning. And that should never end in a person's life. So when you're young, you, yes, you have more room to make mistakes. But when you get older, you can also develop relationship with people that will allow you to start a new project based on someone else's information that you may like that idea, you can invest some money, or you want to join that person force with something new that it could be extremely attractive. I mean, not for nuts, as much as I love it, it's one minimal thing in life. It could be other hundreds of things that I would like to do uh, with probably the same passion. It didn't get presented to me, or that I got to focus into this mm -hmm. one, I didn't do expand myself into other areas. 
But I do think that I constantly develop in my mind a new possibilities and new ideas about things that sometimes is not related with it. I'm traumatized with Nuts for Nuts because I go to travel in different places on the world and I look in a busy corner and I say, ah, I would like to have a Nut Car over here. <laughs> this is a perfect corner. Because you're always looking for the perfect corner. That's what it is when you have a wagon, when you have a push cart. There is always a perfect place in life with the sun and the light and the customers and the train station. And, and so you get... So you walk in and like you say, when you see a busy beach, you say, oh, I would like to have the car right in that corner where people are going to the shower or whatever it is, right? You get with that. But I do think that when you're growing in, in, in life, you're also growing with ideas and you're growing with uh, different things. For example, you can make a tire of eating certain kind of a bagel or certain kind of a coffee and say, you know, I should make my own coffee here. Why, why would I make my own coffee? And, and maybe when you're 54 or 50 or 45 or 64, you decide that maybe you want to do something the way you would like it to be. So when you can do it yourself, I think there are other people that would love to be open to the ideas, sit in a place, have a conversation with people, have a beer, glass of wine, and business is it's, it's unlimited quantity of business that I think it's there to be made. I, I think, because um, I also want to be respectful of everyone's time, I think that's a great way to close this out. Um, I, I do believe it's, it's never too late, right? I, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, the founder of KFC literally started KFC in his 70s. So that, that's pretty, uh, if that's not a testament to it's never too late, I don't know what is for, for an entrepreneur. Um, but, you know, I'd like to take this moment to once again thank, uh, you know, the Williams Center uh, for, for allowing us to host this amazing event. Round of applause to them. They, they were very instrumental in putting the panel together. I greatly appreciate that. Um, special shout out to Michael for, for helping me so much with this. And obviously, a, a huge round of applause for these amazing entrepreneurs. I hope everybody here enjoyed this, and I hope everybody leaves tonight uh, feeling somewhat a little bit more inspired, a little bit more connected. Um, and you know, feel free to reach out to these guys individually. I don't know if you want to share any social media or addresses. And, or... Yeah, we're at Be Well Greens. Please follow us. <laughs> Tell your friends. Come uh, sample some juice outside. We've got some free samples of our cold-pressed juices. Awesome. We'd love to meet you.